Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to this season three of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, and I'm very happy for this first episode of 2022 to be joined by four of my colleagues at the IFS to take a view of some of the big stories that are already hitting us at the moment and uh, will loom large over the coming year. I'm joined by Christine Farquharson, who is one of our leading experts on education, Ben Zaranko, who works on health, Helen Miller, who runs our work on tax, and Robert Joyce, uh, who looks after work on living standards and benefits. And we're going to talk about all those things. We're going to talk about health and education and tax and living standards. And in particular, let's start off with that issue of the cost of living. If we have started the year with any story other than whatever might have been going on in number 10 during lockdown last year, uh, the story has been about the so-called squeeze on living standards. So, Rob, we're hearing a lot about that at the moment. What, what, what does that mean? What is happening to the cost of living? And how, how much worse off are people going to be this year? Well, inflation is rising pretty quickly, and that's something that we haven't been used to seeing for quite a while now. To give some idea, according to the latest forecast from the Bank of England, it expects inflation, annual inflation to reach about 6% by April, which is a big focal point in much of the debate right now, in part because that's when, when benefits normally uh, normally increase. Um, but these kinds of rates of inflation are going to affect everyone, of course. For example, someone on around median earnings is uh, putting that together with some tax increases as well is likely, we think, to actually have less spending power next year uh, than than now. And those on benefits uh, who are reliant on whatever uh, uprating to benefits occurs uh, in April will find that that doesn't keep pace with, with the rise in the cost of living too. So by default, um, benefits go up in line with inflation as it was in September, which is about 3%. Uh, but because inflation has since risen to about 6%, um, that will leave them some way short of maintaining their, uh, their spending power. So it's going to be a big issue in the coming months. And in, whilst inflation as a whole will be 6% um, or possibly more, according to some forecasts, come April, the actual inflation faced by the groups you're talking about, particularly people on benefits, is likely to be quite a lot higher, isn't it? Because they spend so much more of their money on uh, on energy, which is one of the things that's really going up quickly. That's right. So up to now, it's actually been the case that uh, the inflation rate faced by different kinds of households, given the different things they spend their money on, has, has remained quite similar. But that is set to change. We've had these big, big increases in kind of the underlying cost of energy, which have so far been sort of kept at arm's length from households to, to a significant degree, because we have these energy price caps uh, imposed by Ofgem. But that cap did increase in October, and it's set to increase again significantly again in April. Um, so what we're probably looking at, according to current expectations, is something like a 20% rise in the cost of electricity to households, and something like uh, over 30% for, for gas. And because the lowest income households tend to spend, on average, about three times as much of their budgets on domestic fuel as higher income households, that is a bigger deal for them, quite apart from the fact that any erosion of their spending power tends to be harder to deal with if you're already on a, on a low income. So probably the inflation rate for, for low income households will be, will be more like 7% rather than the 6% overall figure, which will further increase that pressure on their, uh, on their living standards. 
Yeah, and that implies with benefits going up, as you say, by 3%. I mean, there's lots of percentages we're um, banding around here, but that's a that's a 4 or 5% reduction in living standards for the people on the lowest incomes, the people on benefits. And uh, that, that's a really substantial hit to anyone's uh, standard of living. Yeah, and to give a, an idea of scale for that in pound terms, that's going to be upwards of about £300 in real terms, by which they're worse off this April compared to to last April, once you factor in that that increase in the cost of living. Um, so uh, it, is a, it is a big deal, particularly if you're already on a low income, as, as these people are. Yeah, and just to put that in context, lots of people here listening to this might not think £300 a year is a, is a great deal, but um, if you're living on out-of-work benefits of uh, significantly less than £100 a week, which is uh, the sorts of levels that um, unemployed people without children are living on, that's potentially a very big effect. Indeed. Now, um, Helen, one of the issues that people are facing, one of the elements of this cost of living squeeze is not just the increase in prices that Rob's been really talking about, but it's also been or going to be a big increase in taxes. Now, they're not going to particularly affect the people on the lowest incomes on benefits, but they're certainly going to affect the, the median earner, the type, one type of household that Rob was talking about. Just just, just remind us what those tax increases are first. Sure. So there's, there's broadly sort of two things the government did on personal taxes last year. So one was to freeze some thresholds. So in particular, the personal allowance, which is the point at which you start paying income tax, and the high rate threshold, which is the point at which you start paying the high rate of income tax, are going to be frozen for four years. So what that really means is that there are now more people who are dragged into paying any income tax at all at the bottom, that's going to really matter, um, and more people who are paying the high rate of tax. So that's that's a, basically an increase in income tax. Then, then the big thing that happened last year was um, effectively an increase in national insurance contributions that will eventually be called the health and social care levy. So they'll be going up, um, due to go up from April. So again, to give you a sense of scale in pounds numbers, for someone earning £20,000, that's a tax increase of about £130 someone on £30,000, that's a tax increase of about £250. So perhaps in and of themselves, not awful, but on top of everything else, that's going to be a noticeable increase in tax bills at a time when, as we just talked about, other incomes are, are going to be struggling because of the prices. Yeah, and the thing that people will see in their pay packets, of course, is that increase in national insurance contributions, which means that their take-home pay will go down. They won't see their take-home pay go down as a result of the freezing of the income tax allowance. But one of the things that is quite interesting about that is that when the Chancellor announced he was going to freeze allowances, he thought inflation was probably only going to be about 3%. It's turned out uh, it'll be about 6 or 7%. So that's actually turning out to be a bigger tax rise than intended. So given given everything else is going on, I mean, should, should he scrap these tax rises? Well, I think it'd be different between scrapping them and delaying them. So I think scrapping the NICS rise altogether, so like getting rid of the new health and social care levy, would be a really pretty big policy decision because I'm sure as we'll go on to discuss, you know, the reason they announced that rise was in order to pay for increased spending on health and social care. And I think they're going to still spend more on health and social care. So if you're going to do that spending and not have the long run tax increase to pay for it, then something else has got to change. So I think that would be a really big decision to just say, we're not doing it at all anymore. What they could do is say, we won't have it come in this year. So sort of scrap the increase this April and just have it start next April. That would obviously you know, ease some of the squeeze that's coming in this April. That's fairly expensive. I think they were thinking that the rise would bring in sort of 13, 14 billion pounds. That's, that's quite a big 
give away relative to current plans. And of course, if you're thinking about helping people, it wouldn't affect all people. So those people who aren't paying any national insurance at all, and people are getting pension income, for example, on which NICS isn't levied, don't really care whether NICS goes up at all or not, because they're not being affected. So even if you delayed the NICS rise, there's still be some people who wanted help for other reasons. So it probably wouldn't be an end to the to the help. And of course, you could do something halfway. So for example, you could stop the NICS rise on employee income, but continue with the rise on employer on an employer side. So you could sort of do a bit of a halfway house. But yeah, they, they could do that. So, but I think if they're going to do something, they should be thinking about delaying rather than scrapping um, uh, altogether. I think that would be a much bigger deal for public finances to just say, we're going to scrap them permanently. Yeah, of course, there was a reason that um, you know, no politicians like to bring in tax rises. And the reason that these were announced was because uh, we are going to be spending a lot more, particularly on health. And we'll come on to that with Ben in a moment. One of the dangers, of course, with saying you're going to delay tax rises is that, you know, we might have another good reason for delaying them again next year, not least that it will be a year closer to a general election and um, increasing taxes at that point might be quite difficult and certainly unpopular. Indeed, we are in this kind of slightly strange situation, aren't we, in which Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has said he's basically in favour of tax cuts, having last year been the biggest tax raising Chancellor in, in a generation. Do you think there's any, do you think there is any scope for any tax cuts before the next election? I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like you said, we just had you know around 40 billion of tax increases last year. So bigger increases than we've seen since the early 90s. A tax burden as a share of national income that's due to be the sort of highest ever sustained level if we carry through with them. And actually, you can quite easily tell a story that says we might need even more tax increases. If you think about how the government might pay for net zero, levelling up, long run ageing pressures on the NHS, you can quite easily tell a story that says we need more spending and more taxes to pay for that. So the context is one in which taxes are going up. Yet the politics, as you've alluded to clearly, is that you know, despite having been a big tax riser so far, he'd like to start being a tax cutter. So I, I can't see a world in which he is able to cut taxes enough so that overall he offsets last year and is a tax cutter overall. That would seem to be unrealistic. But I guess I wouldn't be surprised if, for political reasons, he tries to find some taxes, some salient personal tax to trim so that he can go into election saying, Here's a, here's a salient tax that I've cut back a little bit. So I, I suspect overall tax cuts are a bit more likely than big tax rises, but it's certainly a stark change from where we were last year, I think, moving from big tax rises to, to looking at what we're going to cut. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the the, the, the scope for um, saying something or other, possibly income tax, will be cut in the run-up to an election seems to be there. Uh, but in the long run, as you say, the challenges of an ageing population and additional health spending and so on mean that they will, in aggregate at least, likely be undone over the following parliament or two. One, one, one last question on, on tax, Helen, which is uh, which going back to this issue around fuel prices going up and the sorts of policies that are being suggested to undo that. Um, the Labour Party, with quite a lot of support, it seems now I've heard from some Conservative politicians, are suggesting that we could raise additional money from a windfall tax on North Sea oil and gas producers as a way of paying for mitigating the impact of energy price rises. How plausible is that? How plausible is it to have a windfall tax on that particular group of companies? What might the effects be? Is it the sort of thing which occurs to you as a plausible policy? Yeah, so I think it's worth saying that a few things. So North Sea oil and gas is already treated differently. 
one of the one of the good things from the government's point of view about that sector relative to other companies that is that if you tax it, it can't really move offshore. It can't move to another country. It's, it's kind of has to be in the North Sea. So in that sense, it's a bit easier to tax. And we have always taxed it at higher rates than other companies. In fact, we cut those rates in 2016. And you could just argue to say, if we want to raise more tax from the profits of oil producers or gas producers, we could just put up the rates of corporation tax that we charge that sector. So before you even get to windfall taxes, just, just put up the rates of tax you charge them. I think that would, that would be something that we've done in the past and we could do again. Windfall taxes in particular, you know, the attraction to them in general is that if you can do them and you can get companies to believe they are actually credibly one off, they won't happen again, then they're a good way to raise revenue because they don't change companies' behaviours. Companies won't change their investment plans because they think they can't avoid the tax and they can't change it in the future. So they just carry on doing what they're doing. So in that sense, it could be attractive. And clearly, there is a big energy price spike now. So the government could try to argue that it really is just a one off thing we'll just do now. Of course, the concern is that we'll have higher prices in future and they'll just do it again. And then, of course, the more you do these things, they're not windfalls anymore. They're, they're ongoing taxes. So there's a danger that firms start to expect them to come and therefore they start responding as if there's a permanent tax rise. So I think it's it's tricky, but if you can do it, good. But another issue is whether you only want to target um, the North Sea. So obviously there could be profits coming out of people who are digging the stuff out of the ground. But there are also profits at other uh, other stages in the production. So at the retail end, for example, I think it would be maybe harder to pull off a windfall tax there. But you could think more broadly. So I think the punchline is, yes, we could probably do it. In terms of how much money we would raise, I think we should, you know, we could probably raise a fair amount, maybe some low billions. I don't think you should be thinking about being able to raise enough money to be able to do something like fund a cut in, you know, fund the delay to national insurance contributions, for example. I just don't think there's enough, there aren't enough billions washing around there to make it that kind of scale. So we can get some money. I can see it be politically popular, um, but it's not going to be the silver bullet that just fixes all these problems and pays for everyone to be no worse off as a result of the energy price rises. But a plausible policy then, and a, a policy that could raise something noticeable um, in, the, as you say, the small billions. Ben, we've, I mean, we've already talked in some senses quite a lot about health. I mean, the main reason for the increase in national insurance contributions coming in in April, uh, which, as Helen says, is going to transmogrify into the health and social care levy uh, in a year's time, is to pay for growing costs of uh, health care and um, to actually a much smaller extent uh, is intended to pay for social care. So we'll come on perhaps a bit to this issue of the longer term costs of um, health. But what, what's the position of the health service at the moment as we go in to 2022? I think it's fair to say that the NHS is in crisis mode at the moment. I think the the wave of Omicron sweeping through the country hasn't translated into the numbers of hospitalizations and in particular ICU admissions that people might have feared at one point. But it is certainly placing pressure on the NHS because this wave is a little bit different to some of the previous ones. For one, the NHS at the start of the pandemic, basically dropped everything else. It dropped everything it could afford to drop, and it delayed and cancelled millions of operations. We're now at the point where the NHS can't really do that again, and they're reluctant to further delay or further cancel planned procedures because some of those people's conditions have deteriorated. So they're trying to do a lot more alongside treating COVID patients. They've also got quite a resource-intensive booster campaign going on. And I think, crucially, staff are exhausted and lots of staff are just unable to work because they've either got COVID or they are self-isolating. And I think those workforce shortages are making this wave much trickier to deal with 
than the NHS would like. So hopefully that won't last forever. Perhaps in a few weeks we'll start to see things improve. But right now the NHS is in a in a very tricky position for sure. And where is it with regard to you know, those things that people really seem to care about, in particular um, waiting lists? Yeah, waiting lists are a huge issue, and I think they're going to remain a huge issue for the next few years. Uh, the most recent figures we have from October, there were 6 million people on the waiting list for NHS care in England. Uh, there are obviously more people in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. That's up from about 4.4 million just before the pandemic. So that's a big increase, but that's actually smaller than we might have expected, given how much missed activity there's been, how many fewer people have come forward for NHS care during the pandemic than we would have expected. So that waiting list we could expect to rise further as more of those people come back and finally end up, you know, finally get that thing checked out, finally go forward to their GP to try and get the care which they need, but have perhaps been avoiding. So we could expect that to go even higher. And I think once Omicron is behind us, the NHS is very much going to switch to focusing full-throatedly on trying to deal with that backlog, trying to get through that waiting list, get it heading down rather than up. And to do so, it's going to have to do lots of additional activity. You're going to have to do more than it was doing pre-COVID and more than it was planning to be doing under its previous long-term plan. And that's one of the conditions actually attached to the funding provided to the NHS by the Treasury as a result of the increase in the or the creation of the health and social care levy. And that's one of the, I mean, it is one of the puzzles, isn't it, of the of what's happening in, in health at the moment. That, as you say, the, the waiting lists have risen by about one and a half million, something like that, since pre-COVID. But the number of missed operations, procedures, appointments runs into the many, many millions. There's a question, I suppose, about what's happened to those potential patients. If they do, if lots of them do come back, then the scale of the waiting list could become really dramatic over the next two or three years, couldn't it? Yes, it could, but that's a big if and one we just don't know at the moment. So as you say, there's something like seven or eight million fewer people came forward to join a waiting list during the pandemic than we would have expected. And at the same time, the waiting list has gone up by about 1.5 million. And so if a substantial fraction of that seven or eight million do eventually come forward for care, you could be looking at you know, in a worst case scenario, perhaps a waiting list doubling from six to more like 12 million. And these are the sorts of scary figures that people were warning about last year. But so far, it, there are no signs of a horde of untreated patients finally arriving, banging on the NHS's door seeking care. And if that continues, if people have choose to stay away, perhaps some of them go private, perhaps some have learned to live with their conditions, numbers may never get that high, but I think it's reasonable to expect they will increase perhaps quite substantially, but I would be surprised if they did make it north of, say, 10 million this year. But that is something that NHS leaders will 100% have their eye on and be monitoring very carefully. Maybe it's an indication that we do too much healthcare in normal times if people aren't coming forward. Um, that's to be seen. So that that's the health, that, that's on health. But this health and social care levy, how, how much of that money is actually going to go into social care? Of the 12 billion or so net that is raised by the health and social care levy each year, um, around 85% of that, to begin with, is going to go to the NHS to deal with this big backlog problem. Um, and the remaining 15%, so you know, roughly 1.8 billion per year, will go to adult social care. Some of that is to try and improve workforce training and provide mental health support for staff. Some of that is to increase the fees that will be paid to social care providers. Some of it is to implement the new 
social care funding reform, and the government has a long shopping list of other things it'd like to do as well. Um, so there's £5.4 billion pounds over the next three years for adult social care in England. That's intended to achieve a, a long list of things. It's probably going to struggle to do all of them, but it is a, you know, a substantial increase in social care funding that's been announced. But as you say, given the things it's supposed to be doing, and in particular the Prime Minister's announcement about the change in the way that we pay for social care such that no one has to pay beyond 87000 I mean, there must be a good chance that's not going to be enough to certainly transform people's experiences of social care. I think that's fair, yes. I mean, it's always possible that there will be more funding coming down the line. It certainly won't be the first time that social care funding was topped up. And over time, the plan is for more of this, as the NHS deals with the backlog, more money of that £12 billion or so per year can be shoveled into social care. So, you know, in the medium term, perhaps we will see more transformation. In the near term, it's not going to be enough to dramatically increase the fees paid to providers, implement the new cap, the more generous means test, increase the pay that we provide to social care workers to, say, match their NHS counterparts and increase investments in housing adaptations. And, you know, you, you can go on and on and on. There's no way you can do all of that, but you can certainly make tangible improvements. And some people may well find their experience improves. Councils might find, might find that they're not struggling quite so much to provide the care which they're obliged to provide. You know, there are cautious grounds for optimism, but no, this isn't going to be enough to fix everything. Well, maybe not enough to fix everything, but this additional money for health and social care is genuinely really, you know, between them, really quite substantial um, over the next couple of years. And perhaps not surprising that government would focus on those given the given that we've just been through this pandemic and the scale of the backlogs created and the pressure that social care has been under. But of course, this isn't by any means the only bit of the public sector which has been under pressure and which faces increasing pressures over the next two or three years. We've also seen the education sector significantly affected. Schools were shut for a period, and particularly during the first wave of the pandemic back in 2020. There was a lot of teaching from home a year or so ago. There's been lots of issues with childcare and universities as well. So I'm going to move on now to Christine to talk a little about where we are with regard to education. And let's start off, Christine, with schools. I mean, looking at it, particularly from a financial point of view, what sort of position are schools in as we go into 2022? Well, I think the really good news when we compare this January to last January is that schools at least are open this term. That's important for everybody, for all children, but it's particularly important for the most disadvantaged children who are the ones who on average lost out the most from remote learning. But it's kind of tempting to say, oh, schools are open, then it's it's all fine. Actually, I think we're in a situation that parallels the healthcare system in some ways where The most recent official numbers from the DfE come from early December before Omicron really took off. But more unofficial surveys say in the first week of term this year, a third of schools are dealing with COVID-related staff absences over 10%. So it's definitely not the case that kids are going to school as normal and getting their education as normal. We're probably storing up some disruption and storing up some more problems for the future as well. And what do we know about the scale of those future problems? We obviously had a lot of children away from school getting you know, varying amounts of input during the first period of shutdown. Second period of shutdown, there seemed to be more consistency of input in terms of online teaching, but still not everyone got the same. What do we know about the levels and inequalities in learning loss from all of that? 
so we're starting to get a sense of where learning loss is. I think it's it's important to reflect on and remember just how huge this period of disruption has been during the pandemic. So over the last two years, under the very best case scenario, if you're the luckiest kid, you know, you're prioritized for early return, you never had to self-isolate either because you caught COVID or your classmate caught COVID, there was no local disruption that meant your school closed for longer than anyone else. Under that best case scenario, kids in England lost out on 16 weeks of in-person schooling, and it was slightly higher in some of the devolved nations. That's around a fifth of their total learning time over the 2019-20 and 2020-21 school years. So these are really big periods of disruption that we're talking about. And that's not even counting the autumn 2020 term where we had lots of pupils kind of off on an ad hoc basis. So given the scale of the disruption, it's probably not surprising that we're starting to see that feed into really pretty substantial amounts of lost learning. Estimates suggest by March 2021, so at the end of the second period of school closures, primary school pupils were around two months behind where they were expected to be in their reading. They were almost four months behind in their math. That's bigger for the most disadvantaged pupils. So this is not just about pupils on average losing out on a huge amount of learning. This is also about widening those inequalities in learning that we've been struggling with for years or probably decades before going into the pandemic. There is a, a silver lining here, which is that when kids went back to school after the first round of school closures, those gaps did start to close and the, that learning loss did start to undo a little bit. And that's really due to the efforts of schools and teachers and parents and, and the pupils themselves. But the risk is that the more disruption we have and the less time we spend trying to catch up on this lost learning, the worse these problems are going to be, the more entrenched they're going to become. And for the older pupils who are leaving school, that horizon we have for catching up on the lost learning is, is looking smaller and smaller. And it's always struck me that, I mean, there are two issues here. One is that on average, pupils will learn a bit less. But the real social problem, I suspect, will be that that increased gap between the less well-off and the better-off. I mean, the social class gap has almost certainly increased uh, reasonably substantially. But how much is government actually doing about this? I mean, what sort of additional resources are schools getting in order to help with catch-up? So the government's put money into catch-up. Um, it's around £5 billion as of the last spending review. And a lot of those eggs are going into the national tutoring program basket. Now, the scale of the catch-up funding that we have on offer is not really in the same ballpark as the scale of what some industry bodies have estimated. So people, others have estimated the amount that's needed to address this lost learning problem at closer to sort of 13 or £15 billion. Nevertheless, this is a reasonable amount of money, and if it's deployed well, it can do a lot of good. The challenge we're going to have is the government from the top, from Whitehall, is trying to allocate this money through a program that really hasn't existed before last year in ways that are going to support the very different and very nuanced needs of pupils to try and catch up on, on what they've missed out on. And that's not just you know, have you learned to read this word? Have you learned to solve this math problem? That's also, where's your mental health at? What about your social skills? Have you built the kind of coping strategies and life skills and, and all of those other things that come along with being in school and being in person in school? And actually, those are some of the things that in terms of people's long-term resilience and in terms of their ability to 
to catch up in the classroom, those are some of the foundational skills that underpin that. Getting the strategy right and getting the mix of support right for different kinds of pupils who've experienced different kinds of difficulties over the last two years is going to be really tricky to do from the middle of London. And uh, that, 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 that implies to me, you think there should be more devolution of the money or the responsibility for allocating and spending the money to academy chains, to um, local authorities, to schools themselves? I think one of the really important things to get right in this phase of coming out of the pandemic is rebuilding the relationship between schools, local education policymakers, and the government, the Department for Education. In a lot of ways, those relationships have really been corroded uh, during the pandemic with very little notice given for policy changes, with a lot of lack of consultation, with a lot of lack of bringing schools and head teachers and teachers, parents and families along with the policy. And so getting the relationship right so that schools have the responsibility and the agency that they need to make the best decisions for their pupils, but at the same time that we're making sure that that money is being spent in ways that have an evidence base behind them. Getting that balance right relies on everybody coming into that debate with good faith. And that means that the relationship between the central government and the people on the ground needs to be improved as a priority. Yeah, and that's something one hears an awful lot when talking to professionals in the education system. Far too often this uh, turns out to be a, uh, a relationship which is not based on mutual trust and respect, shall we say, uh, and that gets in the way of a lot of good policy. Finally, Christine, we could spend ages on every aspect of uh, of education, but perhaps a word on the preschool side of things. That's actually something that's from what I've seen, has got remarkably little coverage in the media with respect to what the impact of COVID has been. But actually, it's been quite substantial, hasn't it, for, for early years provision? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think it is puzzling in some ways that we spend so much time talking and thinking about schools, a fair amount of time talking and thinking about university. And then we have some of these other parts of the education system that really seem to fly under the radar in terms of the preschool sector. I think there's a couple of really big challenges here. The first is what providers are going to do. So they had a fair bit of financial support through the first lockdown, the first set of of enforced early years closures. But they're coming into the current period with on much more uncertain financial footing. And the funding formula There were increases for that in the spending review, but they're relatively small and a lot of the money has been quite targeted at certain kinds of people or certain kinds of providers. So the financial sustainability of the sector as a whole is key. On the other hand, we have the lost learning argument for kids in early year settings. So these particularly three and four year olds who weren't able to take up their early education offer in person are going to have missed out on some of the opportunities that that gives them in terms of being socialized, in terms of developing the skills that they need to be school ready when they show up to education. That's not something that we've really seen uh, well assessed so far, mostly because those kids are, are still not quite old enough to have gotten into the school assessment system where we start to get that really good data. But those are potentially problems that are going to make it much more difficult for those teachers in reception in year one to catch those children up on learning and and move them along on the academic side as quickly as we'd like them to. I think the final argument here is ties into the cost of living that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. So 
we've heard that families are under a lot of pressure. And we know that for families with preschool aged children, we know that childcare is a big part of that financial pressure. So the government could well come under increasing pressure to rethink its strategy here. The current system's pretty fragmented and it gives a fair bit of support to some families like working parents with three and four-year-old children. It gives very little support to other families. Um, for example, parents with, with one-year-olds get no free entitlement and really only have access to tax-free childcare or to the benefit subsystem if they're, if they're really quite low income. So I think there's, there's going to be a lot of pressure to think about the childcare system as a whole and whether it's delivering what we want it to be delivering for all of the different types of families who are relying on it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, the way that the experience of the pandemic is, is, is forcing us or should be forcing us to think about the delivery of all sorts of public services, certainly, um, as you say, childcare, but also schools. Um, I think universities have learned a lot or are changing the way they behave as a result of, of this. We've certainly seen in the health and social care sector the extent to which this has resulted in very different behaviours. I mean, even from the sort of point of view of GPs probably um, doing things over phone and Zoom for a period well into the future. So we've had a, a big change in our I think, assessment of what is happening in the public sector. But also, as we think about particularly going into 2022, big pressures throughout uh, public sector provision. We've talked about health, social care and education, but clearly things like the uh, the justice system uh, and many others are also um, local government also under pressure as we go into uh, this year. And, and the difficulty here, of course, is coming back to this issue around cost of living. If you're going to spend more money on all of these things, particularly into the medium term, uh, in order to meet some of these pressures, that's going to require more taxes. And that, in the end, re re results in a, even more of a squeeze on household incomes. Um, so I'm going to round this off by going back round our panel of IFS experts and asking them, uh, that dreadful question, which um, I always hate being asked, which is, so what would you do? Uh, what, are the, um, what, what, what are the top policy options for the, the areas we've been talking to you about? So let, let's go back to you, Rob, first of all. So in terms of dealing with this, uh, in particular, this cost of living crisis, as it's called, this cost of living issue, what would you be advising uh, Rishi Sunak at this point? Well, one thing that I think this provides a good opportunity to tidy up really is the way that benefits in particular are rated not, not to say that that's the benefit recipients are the only group here of any concern but there is a particular issue that arises from the fact that benefits go up in line with a lagged measure of inflation and so during periods like now when inflation is rising that means that benefits don't keep up uh, for some time it can mean the opposite of course when inflation is falling um which perhaps is problematic for, for slightly different reasons. But, but this is causing an issue right now. The government could change this in a couple of ways. One is it could try to be more forward-looking in the sense that it could use near-term forecasts of what inflation will actually be by, say, April, when deciding how much benefits are going to go up by, rather than using this, this quite lagged measure. It already does that uh, elsewhere, does that for excise duties in particular, or actually universal credit for administrative reasons offers, uh, it seems, the chance to be able to adjust benefits at short notice more easily. For reasons that have never been totally clear to me, this always seems to be 
very difficult to do with some of the uh, traditional uh, benefits, we're told. But with universal credit, it is easier. So the government could use that as an opportunity, at least for the universal credit system, to simply wait a bit longer before confirming what April's increase in benefits will be uh, using more up-to-date inflation measures. So in some ways, that's quite an easy change. It's a sort of technocratic change, which would help quite a lot for some of the most vulnerable people right now. And it also wouldn't need to be a permanent change in the level of benefits either. Um, one could claw back any extra money that's given away this year as a result of, of that if one wanted to. But I think there could be a, a, a slightly better permanent way of, of increasing benefits each year that, that this is a good opportunity to... To, to implement. As I say, that's not to say that there aren't other many other households who might find the coming squeeze difficult, but there it is more difficult to talk about what to do because it fundamentally what we're talking about here across the whole economy, we think something like a thirteen billion pound increase in in the in the cost of energy. Um, so compensating for all of that would obviously be extremely expensive, and fundamentally, the country's got worse off because something that's very important that we consume has got more difficult to obtain. Um, so if you want to insulate households, even up to say the average household for that, uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very expensive. Not to say you couldn't do it, but I think there perhaps is a bit of an easier win within the benefit system there. Great thing, and that, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about uprating benefits. I mean, when inflation, as it has been for quite some time now, is down at the one, two, three percent level, it perhaps doesn't matter so much exactly. Uh, how you go about uprating benefits and the fact that you uprate in April with September's inflation figure is almost neither here nor there. But now we're in a, you know, at least hopefully a short period rather than an era of higher inflation. Uh, it really can make a big difference. I remember, so I'm just about old enough to remember this, discussions about this sort of thing in the 1970s when inflation was really high and actually people, particularly on benefits, got a lot worse off through the year as a result of increasing prices. Helen, what about taxes? What options? What's the best option in uh, open to the Chancellor there? There's a, a short-term issue about what they're going to do with the living standards crisis. And I, I think for my money, I think going along with what Rob was saying, I think I'd, you know, personally I'd be trying to find something more targeted to do through benefit systems, for example, rather than trying to do too much fiddling with the tax system because it's going to just be particularly untargeted. Um my, my really big hope for tax, it's always my hope, but it's going to be continuing my, my hope, is that they'll think seriously about reform of taxes rather than just the level of tax. So you can make arguments for whether taxes should be higher overall or lower overall, and they'll want to do some fiddling for the election to have some tax rabbit to give away. But take almost any area of our tax system, and there are just big problems in the structure of the taxes that need to be fixed. So just to reel off some examples, you know, we have a council tax system that's 30 years out of date and it's regressive, you know, fixing the structure of that would help for levelling up. We tax capital incomes at much lower rates than earned income in large part because national insurance contribution owns only apply to earned income. You know, that's a bit of a mess that we should be really fixing for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, environmental taxes are a mess. We have a net zero obligation that we need to be trying to achieve that you know, taxes aren't really pushing in the right direction, at least not as well as they could. So I'd really like the government to, almost in any of these areas, pick them up and say, you know, not necessarily let's fix them this year, but let's have a plan for how we're going to move towards fixing those tax. I think the really big prize there is to say, regardless of how much revenue you want to raise overall, you could do it in a way that's least, less economically damaging and less unfair than some of the systems we have currently. So I think the prize there is kind of a big one, whether you're somebody who wants much higher taxes or much lower taxes. So yeah, almost pick a bit of tax and try to fix it properly rather than just fiddling around with rates, please. 
Well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? And uh, and actually particularly important, given what we talked about in terms of the long run, the tax burden is rising quite a lot at the moment and is likely to rise into the future as we deal with all of the upcoming priorities. And it becomes ever more important that you design those taxes well rather than um, as they are at the moment, badly. So that's quite a big, quite a big, um, quite a big ask from Helen. Ben, what about uh, what about health and social care? Well, Paul, my biggest policy ask actually has nothing to do with health and social care. It's for the government to mark all of England's fixtures in the World Cup with a bank holiday later in the year. But <laughs> if we park that one for a few seconds on health and social care, I think if we take back take a step backwards. I think largely the funding question has been at least the next couple of years, largely answered. And I think the question is now, what do we do with that funding? And what I'd like to see is a much greater amount of focus and attention paid to evaluating effectively what we spend that money on and how well it works. And I think there's some signs, some very welcome signs, that that's embedded in the social care um, policy ambition. So that they're doing what they call trailblazers, where basically some areas are going to have the charging reforms brought in a bit earlier and they're going to see what happens effectively. And there's some signs that they're going to push to have more national level level social care data so we can actually see you know, who's using which types of care, what happens to them, what happens with different policy reforms, different price changes, that sort of thing. And that's very welcome. But I'd like to see much more invested in that. And that might mean you know, not rolling things out on a national level all at once, which makes it much harder to see what impact it had. We've seen lots of that in the pandemic. So, for instance, incentivizing pharmacists to provide more vaccines by increasing the fee we pay them. Why are we doing that nationwide? Why don't we try it out in just a few bits of the country and see if they act differently to other bits of the country? So actually a bigger focus on evaluating what works and making sure we get the biggest bang for our buck would be my ask for health and social care. That as well as bank holidays for the World Cup. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and certainly right across public services, uh, government which really invests in working out what works uh, would be lovely. Um, and we have uh, far too little of it, as indeed I think the head of the National Audit Office was writing just earlier this week. Uh, Christine, finally, um, education, what would your number one priority be for this year? So the government's due to make about 16 million education announcements in the next few months. We've got the school's white paper. We have this really long delayed review of special educational needs and disability. We're still owed an official response to the 2019 Augur review and to post-19 education. So there's there's going to be a lot of policy in this space. I think my big ask is um, actually echoes what Ben said, though, is we've we've got this money that's going predominantly into the national tutoring program, but in into post-COVID catch-up. And this is not a new question, right? Like, how do we help children to make the academic progress we want them to make? How do we help particularly the most disadvantaged children to make the progress we're expecting them to make? This is not something that's just popped up in the last couple of years. It's a question we'd really actually quite like to know the answer to in the longer term as well. And so understanding how this national tutoring program and this catch-up money is being used and understanding what parts of that actually work and actually seem to deliver the most value for money is not just going to pay dividends for targeting that pot. It's going to be something that we can really build on um, for years and years into the future. So I think that's that's got to be at the core of how we're deploying these resources. 
since you asked me about preschool and since I am always a bit sad that that gets that that gets neglected, I think in that space, my biggest ask would be really to understand and to think about who's benefiting from the current system and particularly who's not, and to think about what we can do to plug the gaps there. So those those really young children, the one-year-olds and, and some of the two-year-olds, are getting substantially less support than some of the older children exactly at the moment where their mothers and, and fathers, but mostly their mothers, are trying to make a decision about whether they go back to work after matern- maternity leave. So I don't think any sort of policy that looks at the early years system of support as a whole can afford to ignore those groups anymore. Well, thank you. That's quite an ambitious agenda laid out by you all there. Helen simply wants uh, you know, the sensible reform of the entire tax system. Uh, and I think Ben and Christine would like to um, have a government which really spends money on things that work and works out what does work alongside Christine's desire for uh, much more focus on the youngest children, which, again, all of the evidence tells us is likely to be important both for them and for their parents. Um, thank you all for what's been a fantastic, um, uh, if necessarily um, uh, quick, overview of four of the biggest issues that are going to be facing government and indeed will be part of the public debate uh, for the next year. I'm sure that I will be talking to each of you individually in much more depth about each of these things over the coming weeks and months. But thank you everyone for listening to this, the first of our IFS Zooms in of 2022. I hope that has whetted your appetite for some of the fantastic work that uh, my colleagues have been doing. Do look on our website and elsewhere for much more detail on all of those things. Do continue tuning in to the IFS Zooms in. Keep well and we'll see you again soon.